1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. From Welcome to Art Slice, a podcastable serving of art history. The first full serving in, hmm, let me check my watch, uh, actually my phone, uh, a full season. <laughs> Oops. I'm Stephanie Duenas. Economically speaking, the value of this episode has increased exponentially since we have not had a full serving in some time. I am Russell Shoemaker. <laughs> if this is your first time here. Welcome, maybe. And you are easily angered by undaddy valleys. <laughs> check. Goat noises. Check, check. Uh, Guinies. Check. And and what else? Uh, completely relevant digressions. Check. We have those. Check. Pantrymon. <laughs> Basically, Russell and I just having fun while discussing art. No somos tu flavor preferido. And that's okay. See. Si. Okay. Vaya con Dios. Ah, uh, see. Si. Stephanie. What are we talking about today? Today, listeners, if you're still with us, you're cool. We will be discussing <laughs> the second generation multidisciplinary surrealist, Dorothea Tanning, and not one, but two Dose. of her artworks separated by 30 years. Uh. Birthday from 1942, Oil on Canvas, and Hotel du Pavot, Chambre de Zandu, a soft sculpture installation work from 1793. <laughs> from 1973. And listeners, we have to admit, we thought we knew a one, a Dorothea Tanning. <laughs> However... Our impression of her was not complete. No era completa. Ah, uh, yeah. Dor, as we have come to call her, <laughs> which we came to call her that very late, unfortunately. I, I wanted to rewrite the entire episode. Stephanie wouldn't let me. Uh, is multitude. But when you live for 101 fucking years, you just can't, you can't do the same thing for 101 years. Right. You gotta mix it up. Right. It's gonna get a little bit boring. A little bit. Yeah. Dorothea passed away in 2012. That was just 10 years ago. <laughs> and ear buddies, it, it is mind-blowing. Uh, via the ear canal to think <laughs> your lives, our lives overlapped with folks who were honest to God surrealists and lived through all of this history that has unfolded since then and seems to still kind of be rearing its ugly head every now and then. God, I mean, we don't really get into it in this episode, but it does give some good context. The artists we've covered have survived and thrived through war, pandemics, displacement, persecution. And as interesting as it's been to research history for the show, we consistently find examples of how we are just repeating history um, in the year of our Lord 2022 and obviously not in a good way. Uh, one thing about the way history and in particular art history is presented to us, it's always as this monumental time mm -hmm. led by these giants, usually to inflate the market value of said artworks. <laughs> but a lot of them, like especially like Dorothea Tanning, were pretty normal people, like everyday people who just had to deal with a lot, a lot of shit, yeah. who kept the generally well-deserved malaise and doomerism to a manageable amount and, and kept on trucking, I guess. I don't know. 
<laughs> well, look, I mean, other than occasionally riding, which we should absolutely be doing, we have to manage the dichotomies. Like, we can take care of one another, and we also need to keep doing the things like making art that complete us. I know that sounds like maybe not that important, but it is. It is. <laughs> let's just get into it. As always, listeners, you can find some of the images that we are about to discuss on our Instagram page at ArtSlicePod. But we recommend going to our website at ArtSlicePod.com to see all of the images. And hopefully in a week or two or three or five, this will be up on YouTube so you can see all the images while you're listening to it. On that note, listeners, we will leave you with a quote from 2002 Dorothea that is <laughs> relevant now more than ever. Quote, art has, has always been the raft onto which we climb to save our, our sanity. sanity. End quote. Soft, white clouds floated past the Parisian skyline below a crystal blue summer sky. The afternoon sun reflected its heat off the wide, static boulevards. A couple leans against stacked sidewalk cafe chairs, watching as a lone, foreign young woman walks aimlessly, searching for the city's pulse. She was probably startled to hear the couple speaking in hurried, hushed tones, obfuscating the French language she thought she had studied for this very moment. This was not the city she expected. With nothing to do but sit in her room, sketching the clouds and the rooftops of this quiet, vacant city. Dorothea Tanning had finally entered the last leg of what she called, quote, her lifelong itinerary to Paris. This itinerary had originated in Galesburg, Illinois, a small town closer to the Iowa farmlands than the towering skyscrapers of Chicago. More on that in a minute. <laughs> she brought handwritten letters that she intended what? to give to Parisian artists she admired, Ugh. all of whom were a, quote, revolution to her when she first saw their work in the exhibition Fantastic Art, Dada, and Surrealism in New York City. Oh, New York City. New York City. Oh, my God. It feels good. It feels good. Steph has been a while. Uh, she had been a huge fan of their work, and now she could finally tell them in person on their turf or cloud. However, <laughs> yeah, it's August of 1939, so soon approaching. Baguettes would become pretzels, Stephanie. Cheese would become mustard. Wine would become beer. Or you yeah. mix it too, I guess. Pate would become sausage. Actually, you know, Hitler was a vegetarian, so maybe oh. not maybe not the pate sausage Ooh. thing. But maybe yeah, like but, a yeah. But a lot of butt is what I'm getting right a lot, now. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of butt, uh, a lot of bananas. I have a feeling. I have a feeling. He was lied to a lot. Oh yes, this is kosher vegetarian. Kosher's not vegan. Okay, so yeah, that I was getting. Also, I don't think Hitler would like kosher food, Stephanie. <laughs> I said it and I was like, this sounds wrong. This sounds wrong. <laughs> I just think he was lied to, okay? 
because how hard must it have been to get like vegetarian vegan food in the fucking 1930s? Yeah. Okay. He was lied to, I think. That's probably the Jews' fault somehow. <laughs> okay. This was a static version of Paris when she was expecting to soak up all those creative vibs of the center of the art world at that time, but instead she got a vib vacant town. Town devoid of vib. Okay. It was devibbed. It, it had recently devibbed. Boo. It's got a smooth, unvibbed surface. <laughs> okay. 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 Uh, okay. It's actually not so hard to imagine what Paris may have looked like at this time. Just think of the surreal, pun intended, photographs of the 2020 quarantine. She continued to seek out the city's pulse, okay, but mostly wandered through empty gardens and museums, which honestly sounds that's, that's amazing great. because Paris is so fucking crowded. So just a quick refresher, listeners, the Parisian artist that Dorothea had hoped to meet. So what? Okay. Can you run this by me again? Is Was she just going to like bump into them? <laughs> like what was her plan exactly when that happened? As unlikely as it would be because well, Paris is a pretty fucking big city. Yeah, it doesn't seem like thought out. Or executed well <laughs> at all. Kind of right. Like, what were they going to do when she just showed up with letters to hand to them? Were they going to read the letters uh, uh, in front of her? You like my work? Do you have my belle uh, merci beaucoup, merci beaucoup. Bye <laughs> uh, bye. Anyway, she probably passed those artists in their limbo boats leaving Paris. Okay? Yeah, of course, of course. There was Kati Orna, the Hungarian anarchist socialist photographer who aided and documented the Spanish Rojos. She had fled to Paris to escape Franco, who'd mm-hmm. become too strong, too Franco. <laughs> Yeah. And quickly had to flee Paris for Mexico City. Max Ernst, who served in World War II in the German army, was arrested when he was feared to be a German spy. Duh. Leaving his much younger partner, Brit Leonora Carrington, L.C., to fend for herself, eventually escaping with the help of his estranged son and a marriage offer from wealthy wartime discount art collector, Peggy Guggenheim. Elsie, Leonora Carrington, <laughs> witch slash artist slash hyena queen hey. slash art slice star, fled and during her escape became so distraught she suffered a mental breakdown and she was thrown into an institution until she finally escaped Rapunzel style from hyenas <laughs> and then also had to flee to Mexico. Remedios Varro also had left Franco Spain for Paris. Her openly communist leanings landed her in a Parisian jail, but eventually she also escaped to Mexico City, where she became friends with Katzi and LC. And those are just the artists that we have covered here on Art Slice. (laughs) I guess even with Hitler breathing his stinky banana broccoli breath what? down Paris's back, they were more worried about another Paris commune situation, it seems like. Situation. Seems like. The communist, no. The communist, no. Hey, did you have a mustache? I'm like, I don't That's know. That's how I have to get into the character. I figured it out now. Mustache? I gotta pretend I have a mustache. That accent. Uh, okay, um. As summer turns to September, Hitler invades Poland, prompting France and the UK to officially declare a thumb war. (laughs) Someone, though, for real, from the Louvre gets on the megaphone. Americans, please leave. Any Americans, we need you to please leave immediately. Okay, bye bye. (laughs) Especially Peggy Guggenheim. Stop calling. (laughs) Literally, the American embassy was telling Dorothea, vacation time over. Go home. We don't want you. We don't want to be liable for your American ass. Bye. (laughs) Au revoir. 
Speaking of get the fuck out, her papa, her Swedish American papa, telegrams her and Telegram. he tells her, yes, <laughs> to take the train to Uncle Hugo in Stockholm because they still had family up there. She's like, he's just like, just please stay away from the pony farms. <laughs> Whatever you do. And polite young men. Now, is there a train that can take her all the way from Paris to Stockholm? Yes. You might be wondering, listeners. And yes, there is. What a relief. But uh, actually, just kidding. No, <laughs> it goes through Belgium and Germany. As the train rolled into German territory, she brushed with that very danger that was de-vibing Paris. Okay. Hitler Youth. The Hitler Youth. Okay, they quickly... <laughs> they were sawing off the vibs. This is too vibed? You cannot have this kind of vib in, in Germany? Oh, ew, what? They're, saw, they're, they're sawing the vibs off. The Where vibes. are the... What are the... I know. It, it just sounds... It just sounds ribbed. It sounds like ribbed. So, I, well, here, Stephanie, step, step behind the joke with me. <laughs> it sounds like ribbed, but it's actually it's vibes. Okay. So, it's, it's several steps away from what it used to be. Uh, okay. <laughs> The Hitler youth were threatening and heckling Dorothea for days, but she does make it to Stockholm unharmed okay. physically. Uh, she, that might she, scar she goes you. By the, she goes by one of the stops on the Stockholm train as the train is passing and the windows open. Oh, you look very nice. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to come to my body farm? <laughs> we have very nice ponies. <laughs> Is it going in circles? <laughs> I'm drooling. Oh, man. Okay, that was... But she does make it to Stockholm unharmed physically. Uh, she does meet up with her Swedish family, which buys her enough time to find a one-way ticket back to the USA, baby. Baby. Okay, the last boat. She's not coming back. While Dorothea didn't experience the horrors of war firsthand, this, at first, boring, static trip abroad changed her life forever. Quote, Those, Those 32, 32 days studded with, with failure, failure had, had blasted open my eyes and my mind. I had rubbed elbows with enough collective madness to know it would never matter what I might think of what was happening. Never again would the sound of political harangue embarrass my other tuned ears. Never again would I sit burning with embarrassment in meetings in which I did not belong. Never again would I confuse heckling with heroics." End quote. Dorothea was still resolved to one day meet the Parisian artist she had written those letters to, and hopefully never gave them away to. <laughs> <laughs> However, she couldn't have anticipated it would happen in just a few short years, and not in Paris, but in New York City. New York City. New York, New York City. City. Dorothea Margaret Tanning, or Dottie, <laughs> to her <laughs> middle-class parents, was no stranger to static, slow living. She just hadn't, I guess, expected it. In Paris, of all places, she was the middle child of three daughters of a normie nuclear family. And if you look at photographs of Dorothea from this time in her life, on the surface, she looks like she would fit right in to said family. <laughs> but from a very early age, Dottie just found her small, flat, Midwestern hometown of Galesburg to be boring as fuck. Okay, <laughs> A.K.A. the kind of town that you, quote, sat on the Davenport and waited to die. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Just kidding. Sat on the Davenport and waited to grow up. End quote. Whether Dorothea realized it or not, there was a creative spark that compelled her to rebel against the monotony of Galesburg. And she was maybe filled with a little rage. A healthy little girl rage. 
that we all need, we could all use in our lives. She stacked a lot of the uh, town Davenports together and set them on fire as an <laughs> effigy, Stephanie. What? Burn them all. <laughs> Stack them, burn them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, anyway. Big effigy. Okay. So, <laughs> so they know, so the Davenports know. Yes. Stay out of Galesburg. Um, this is not the Galesburg you grew up with, Davenports. This is a new Galesburg. This is year zero Galesburg. This is the 20th century. Okay. Okay. Anyway, to quell this rage, little Dottie, she looked inward and began to draw. She began to paint. She began to write as inspiration came to her. As she kindled the flame of the Davenport burning energy, she also kindled her creative flame. Love it. Love it. As far as we know, her family wasn't creative. There wasn't a museum or a gallery to visit in Galesburg, but she leaned into it. And by the time she got to high school, she had convinced her parents to let her have the backyard shack for a studio. Okay. (laughs) Keep her out of the house. Good idea. Dorothea grows up, though. She does grow up. Graduates from high school and picks up a job at the local biblioteca. Mm, the, the Libro depo- Depositorium. <laughs> Depositorium. That's what, that's what I meant to say. Uh, this was not a hipstery, artsy, sunwise turn style bookstore that a young Peggy Guggenheim was introduced to art at. It was not the typical place where a young mind goes to become, quote, forever corrupted, end quote. But that is what happened. <laughs> Dorothea's boss also made it super easy by marking all of the books that she considered inappropriate for minors with X's. <laughs> so they could find them easier. Exactly. And this is where Dorothea saturated her brain with vivid descriptions of parallel pocket universes like those found in Picture of Dorian Gray, Through the Looking Glass, or Against Nature, one of my favorite books. And she now knew the possibility of the human imagination. It was this devious, sexual, funny, evil, wild, mysterious, basically everything that Galesburg was not. Right. And she was never going to be the same. Still fighting that Davenport rage, she tried to go back to the trajectory her life was set for. To go to college, to meet a boy, to have a family. <laughs> to get a Davenport. But two years in, she said, fuck this. Fuck this shit. And in 1929, she took the midnight train going anywhere. Just kidding. She wanted just to get the fuck out of Gillsburg. And she heads to Chi-Town, Chicago, a.k.a. the Windy City. <laughs> <laughs> so she watches the cornfields turn into, by today's standards, relatively short, towering skyscrapers. Yeah. Chicago was rough. Chicago was scary. Chicago was in the middle of Prohibition and the Depression. Jeez. Double whammy, right? Good mix. So Dorothea's parents were not too thrilled that young Dottie was fast talking, you see, going to speaking easies, <laughs> listening to jazz music. Well, she does all of that. Okay. She meets weirdos, con artists, and she even went on a date with a mob guy who she thought stood her up in the middle of their date when he said he'd BRB, right? right? He, he didn't. Yeah. He never did BRB. M- yeah, more um, like RIP. Actually, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, turns out, <laughs> turns out he, he was gunned down a block away from their date. So he was leaving the date, though, to be clear. He was leaving. Because like a block in Chicago terms is not, is that it's not a Galesburg block. Well, he got called away. Yeah. He got called away. Okay. On some mob business. It's not because she was from Galesburg or anything. Yeah. Oh, shit. Where the fuck is Galesburg? He just Galesburg? goes to the bathroom. Go. The old Galesburg doll has some fine gams, some steamed hams, but she's she's a dead hoofa. <laughs> what the fuck? She's a dead hoofa. She can't jitterbug. She can't, she can't hop. That was bad. Sorry. <laughs> In any case, Dorothea was lucky, okay, that she didn't go on another date with that mob guy. Um, But she had a steady job, definitely not the best job, but she made enough to enroll at the Chicago Academy of Art. Now the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. S-A-I-T. Yeah. Her portfolio at this time is your standard work, nothing special. 
But then here she is at art school. She walks into her first class and she smells the turpentine, gessoed canvas, Mm. varnish, and in the drawing class, the velvet sigh of 20-some charcoals on paper. Music to my ears, end quote. I love the smell of art school. It does does make Mm. you feel a certain way. Well, if you're in a small room, yeah. And now you know it's time to walk outside. (laughs) But the smells and the music didn't last very long when Dorothea realized what was materializing on those 20-some papers. Even though this was a one-on-one drawing class using nude models, Mm. the instructor pushed students to squash the figure's proportions down to just shapes and forms a la Pablo Picasso. Violent. A la Demoiselle d'Avignon. Yeah. Dorothea actually did admire Picasso's work, but she didn't think that she needed to be. Uh, A Pablo iteration. Yes. And so she dropped out. Again. Again. (laughs) (laughs) Instead, she learned from the museum. Nearly every day, she walks through the galleries and its echoey gallery halls, amplified by the tile floors and the high ceilings, keeping her eyes peeled for works to study. And she had centuries worth from ancient to modern and everything in between to choose from. Mm. She doesn't have to settle for no Picasso squash. Okay, listeners, we are jumping back into the late days of 1939. Dorothea has arrived back in New York City. New York City. New York City. Fresh off that cruiser ship from Stockholm, still feeling a little bit rattled by those steely-thighed Hitler Nazi youths. (laughs) But she had actually lived here before, four years prior, after following art opportunities to New Orleans and San Francisco, neither one panned out, um, which added to the now long-running pattern of things just not working out the way she had hoped. This time around, she did find a regular income from illustrating fashion ads for a department store, so hopefully no need to move across the country for a job opportunity. And while New York City... Uh, Oh, New York City. New York City. Wasn't as inaccessible as it is today, she still had to wash her only pair of pantyhose every night. She had to use the back of a chair as an easel. Oh, God. And she still needed to pick up the occasional side gig like Grasker Hula Girl (laughs) serving wealthy people finger sandwiches. Uh, Or, 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 you'll like this one, Russell. She was an extra as one of the damned at the uh, Metropolitan Opera for La Traviata. Okay. Yeah, she had to wear a sweaty sack uh, with uh, 30 other performers all one screaming sack? and waving their arms. What? In one sack? No. One big sack? 30 people, 30 sacks. Separate sacks. <laughs> Not like a big worm sack Individually situation. Individually wrapped. <laughs> that would be pretty cool, though. Huh? Anyway, they're all squeamy- squeaming. They're all squeaming. <laughs> screaming, yeah. They're all screaming and waving their arms in the air like they just don't care. But they do because they're on fire. They're damned. And in sweaty sacks. And sweaty, sweaty sacks. sacks. I would also yeah. be screaming and waving my real. arms. Yeah. Trying to get a little little air into the sack. That is the most beautiful feeling, though, when you're just drenched in sweat and you just get a little breeze. You're like, moving on. So, all right. So Dorothea is working this hectic life. She's working it. Okay. She's not living. Okay. You know what? Nobody lives in this capitalist hellscape. (laughs) 
So Dorothea is living the hectic life of a... Some like 1930s version (laughs) of the gig economy, it sounds like. exactly. She had a few hours left in the day to focus on her own artwork, not the illustrations from Macy's. So in that small window of time, she worked and worked in her studio, but things just weren't quite clicking. Okay, same reoccurring theme. She's what, like in her 30s now? Yeah. Most people would have gone out for drinks with coworkers to blow off some steam, you know, to to blow off the sweat from the sweaty sacks (laughs) that they worked in. I mean, it seems like she had the skills but didn't have the direction yet, so so nothing was really coalescing. But it does seem like she saw the forest for the trees. (laughs) I think I'm I'm using that saying right. Okay. She she basically, she was laser focused. Mm. We've said it before, but it's worth repeating. At some point, artists, especially those whose circumstances don't align perfectly, ultimately have to make tough sacrifices like having a buzzing social life. Even if she put all that time and effort into making and keeping friends, most of them wouldn't have understood it when she chose a night in the studio alone. Like painting her weird kale girls. We'll get to that in a moment. (laughs) And far be it from us, Stephanie, to romanticize one New York City, New York City. But one thing it did offer was a never-ending rotation of art exhibitions. And it was probably one of those days, seeing what's going on in the streets. Hitting the pave. That she stumbled into the show where she would find her direction. Fantastic art, data, and surrealism. Curated by Alfred H. Barr, who, longtime listeners will know, gave Diego Rivera and Charles Birchfield their first big museum shows. Mm. However, this was not the typical art exhibition you would expect to find in 1936. No. Unlike old Galesburg, the weird was not marked with an X to keep it out of impressionable (laughs) eyes and minds. Okay, it was displayed and celebrated. Alfred H. Barr had to fight the Board of Trustees to even get some of this work in the show. It mm. was it was too crazy. Too wild. This was the first major exhibition of then-contemporary artists like Marcel Duchamp, Lenore Feeney, Max Ernst, Dora Maar, Salvador Dali, Rene Magritte, Merritt Oppenheim, to name a few. There were a lot of artists in this show. But it did more than just exhibit. It showed its work, all right? It showed, it showed its homework, right? It traced the ideology of weirdness through the strange outliers in art history. Like, imagine entering this dirty, dingy gallery, you're okay. out of breath from the trucking up 12 flights of stairs. Then you see some 15th century Hieronymus Bosch hellscapes, some 16th century Archimboldo vegetable people? <laughs> Portraits. Uh, whatever, random work from folk artists, children, and psychiatric patients. Oh. Yes, they were all included in this show. And then, Stephanie, you find yourself all of a sudden in the uncanny daddy. Daddy <laughs> Daddy Kiriko. Giorgio Daddy Kiriko had a lot of work in this show. It was all there for you. You could see historically artists liberating the depths of their psyches. And most importantly, Dorothea saw a lot of women artists setting Davenports on fire, liberating the depths of their psyches too. Hell yeah, she could also envision herself on the wall. She sees the little dashed lines like Dorothea here, right? Okay, anyway. It can't. It just can't be understated how important the show was because war was ramping up again. There was a worldwide depression. Right. Folks' bodies were being sacrificed by the powerful for fucking nothing. Life was absurdity. And here were these artists who weren't trying to hide it. And like the Galesburg Library when Dorothea was a teenager, this show knocked her pantyhose off. <laughs> oh, God. Only now it meant so much more, right, as an adult. I mean, she's 26. But it's difficult to match or or top the awe that you feel when you experience something as awesome as discovering that the world is much wilder and more marvelous than you could have ever imagined. Mm. 
Here were so many artists with no, quote, formal experience in art. So if she had been feeling lost or overwhelmed, it now became crystal clear for her that she was on the right path. She only needed to dive a little bit deeper. Quote, I was, I was impressed, impressed by, by daring its daring and addressing, and addressing the tangles of the subconscious, trolling the psyche to find its secrets, to glorify its deviance. I felt the urge to jump into the same lake where I had already waited before I met, met any, any of them. them. End quote. When Dorothea returned to that easel chair situation, she had a renewed energy, a new direction to work towards, but this was just the beginning point. Her work is about to go through an awkward, surrealist teen phase, a la Renee <laughs> Magritte. I mean, less uh, wood grain naked ladies and, yeah. and, and turtle pinatas. But I mean, okay, so they're not bad. They're just, yeah. It was skilled, but it wasn't really anything extraordinary. So with this realization, she had to take those tools and learn how to speak with them in a different way. Right. At first, we still see the influence of those fashion illustrations from her day job, right? Model girl in front of a sort of strange medieval <laughs> backdrop. Model girl with like Christmas tree uh. hair. I feel these. Uh, we have kelp hair girl with ghostly skin. Beautiful. A lot of sunscreen. Okay. And she's also got a strange prairie grass straw hat. She's got to protect that yeah. ghostly skin. Yeah. <laughs> it's got, I think it's got some birds in it. Can't see because of the pixels. It would not surprise <laughs> We don't actually borrow the the paintings, listeners. I know we we talk a big game about stealing them. (laughs) These works are certainly not our favorites, but she caught a break. Something finally broke her way. And it's important to note here, Dorothea did not have an in, but she knew someone who did. We're not sure how this happened, but her boss, Mr. Big Department Store Advertisement Art Director, was very impressed by Dorothea's personal paintings and Mr. Big Department Store advertisement director (laughs) did have an in. Okay. He decided to introduce her to influential gallerist Julian Levy, who had or would show artists like Renee Magritte, Leonora Carrington, Frida Kahlo. Okay, he had the eye for it. This Julian Levy was so taken with her work that he immediately signs her up for a solo show. Which is great, but also she only has a couple of mostly kelp girl-themed paintings at this point. (laughs) And those gallery walls, let me tell you, they start to look real big. You think you have a lot of work. (laughs) Take it to that gallery. You're like, oh, Oh. God, there's so much wall. It's a lot of wall. There's a lot of wall here. (laughs) You should spread them out in weird ways. This is a sparsely curated show on purpose. This was intentional, intentionally sparse. Okay, sorry. This was cure. Okay, sorry. Okay. Uh, Through Julian, Dorothea would be introduced to one certain circle of European refugees, Mm. the Surrealists. Duh. Okay. You didn't see that coming? I mean, we did write this together. I mean, but what is she doing with the cringy (laughs) handwritten letters? She still have those? Because I don't really understand her endgame. Is she flushing them down the toilet? Flush. Flush. I hope so. Lifelong friendships, like actual friendships, Mm -hmm. are formed with artists that she had admired on the MoMA walls just years earlier. And most importantly, she makes a... mm, mm, An impression. Yes. An impression. (laughs) On wartime bargain art collector slash art of the century gallery owner Peggy Guggenheim and her loyal husband slash OG mm. surrealist slash former Elsie boy toy Max Ernst. And if you recall, listeners, Peggy had just opened her gallery and via Marcel Duchamp's persistent prodding, 
Peggy, you should exhibit a show of only women artists know. You are a woman? They, they are women artists? This has artist never been know? done before. Peggy, you could be the first. So she's like, what a great idea I've, I've just had. Me, Peggy Guggenheim, has just had. Yes. And in my inner dialogue in my brain, which is French, and, and, and so it sounds like... <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a little bit like my friend Marcel Duchamp. Duchamp. So Duchamp. Peggy, Peggy, Peggy. Mole pegs. It's not was not the easiest person to get along uh, with. Okay. She sends her loyal, charming husband to scout some works for the show of all women artists. This surrealist man who makes these thirst trap paintings for <laughs> young surrealist women. Who did not marry me to get out of a French prison. He offered. He offered to scout some works for this show of all women artists. Yeah, He's exactly. going to scout the works. He offered, okay? So sweet. Dorothea was on this list, listeners. <laughs> and Max was impressed. She was no longer painting weird kale girls at this point. <laughs> she had started to... Kale girls or kelp girls? Same thing. She had started to channel that Davenport burning chaos energy from Galesburg. Now she was painting these pictures of little girls ripping down wallpaper or, or another child wearing used gum for clothing. <laughs> playing with some banana yo-yo on like a razor wire situation. These are giving chaotic, reckless energy. <laughs> Very reminiscent of those female artists from the MoMA show just a few years earlier. But she is still melding that that daddy, that daddy uncanniness. You're saying it. I did. I grew up. Okay. Daddy uncanniness. The, the uncanny daddy. <laughs> the undaddy valley. Whichever you prefer. <laughs> okay. Finished off with some Dolly level rendering. Mm. Okay, put that in a blender. You get yeah. you get Dorothea Tanning circa 1942. Gotcha. Max was especially taken by an untitled topless self portrait of Dorothea's. <laughs> yeah, like I roll right. Legend has it he suggested the title to be Birthday since he declared Dorothea right then and there a surrealist. Before he left her studio, Max caught a picture of a chessboard pinned to a canvas, and he asked if she played chess. Well, Dorothea did play chess, and so so they played every day for a Uh, week, and then Max promptly moved in. Those chess games are long. They're long games. So he brings with him a box of his stuff from Peggy's apartment, <laughs> including what I believe is one of Peggy's Peckingese dogs. The, the, I think. the, the dirty, ugly mop dog. Whatever fucking breed yeah. it is. I have no idea. Like, okay, hear me out. Hear me out. What are the odds, first of all, that Pegs would even notice that no, one was missing? She, she had like a dozen of yeah. them. <laughs> she wouldn't notice. Secondly, okay, Max. Okay, you just happen to love that stupid breed too. Sorry. Probably took his favorite one, right? I'm offending a lot of dogs. <laughs> I think he took his favorite yeah, one. Yeah, because he made a painting of it. What do you mean? There's like a cardboard cutout painting of a Dirgly. <laughs> Dirgly? Goddamn. There's like a cardboard cutout painting of a, a dirty, ugly mop dog. No, show me. I just feel like you're making it up because you hate dogs so much. Like you want no, this I, to be true. I don't mind dogs. I just don't want to own them. <laughs> All look, right. doesn't this look like it? Oh my God, did he take the dog? Did he take the dog? Oh my God, the name, the name. Yeah, oh what's my it say? God. What's it say? It says Translate it. Kachina, the dog of Peggy Guggenheim. The dog Guggenheim. of Peggy Guggenheim. He <laughs> took he, it. And, he and he's flaunting it. it. He's flaunting it. He's making a little cardboard cutout. Damn. I love it. Um, what year is this from? Oh my god. Extra distance from 1942. <laughs> Ouch. Ooh. This is oh, like a ransom, boy. a ransom Boise. painting. 
It seems like these two, Dorothea and Max, were maybe probably soulmates, mm-hmm. if you believe in that stuff. They did spend the rest <laughs> of their life together. They did, yeah. One day, Dorothea was working on another illustration for an advertisement, and Max earnestly asked her if she enjoyed it. Oh, I get it. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Um, And she was like, of course fucking not. I fucking hate <laughs> this. I hate it. But I need to. I need to make money. He was like, I have supported myself with my paintings all my life. I can do it for two. Mm. That was Max's way of proposing. um, And it became official. They became official. Okay. So So Peggy, did she still show Dorothea? Mm. And that show of Z women? But she was salty about it. Okay. Probably about (laughs) about the dog too. I don't think she (laughs) even noticed the dog. Let's be honest. But she did. She she did. She showed Dorothea. There was an interview uh, where someone asked her about the show and she goes, 31 women. It should have been 30. Okay. The show was yeah. called 31 Women. All right, let's get into it, listeners. This is the version of Dorothea most people know. And birthday from 1942, oil on canvas, is the one painting that is most associated with her name. Birthday is about 40 by 25 and a half inches. We're getting into maybe wouldn't fit so well against the back of a chair (laughs) territory here. It's important to note that this is a self-portrait. She's standing in a well-lit room, Mm -hmm. 11 a.m. on on an overcast winter's day kind of light. Oh, okay. I I feel like this room has no windows and it's only Mm, light bulbs. Really? Dorothea is opening a door to other doors. She's opening a door to a door showroom. (laughs) But first, let's talk about what she's wearing and not wearing. (laughs) Listeners, real talk, the first thing you'll notice about this work is that her bare chest is out. It's not like out and proud. It's not shameful or even sexual. It's just kind of there. Yeah. And she, Dorothea, is not meeting your gaze in this painting. Right. But she's also not being coy. Her arms and shoulders are covered, and she is also covering her body below her ribcage. So what's left is her chesticles. Her chest and her face. Okay, that's really all we can see. And some of her legs. Which at first, we kind of rolled our eyes at this decision. Like, okay, here is a stereotypically attractive Western woman Mm. bearing her breasts. Bearing her soul, too. Shocking. It's not just her breasts. (laughs) In a surrealist painting. Okay, how many times have we seen that before? Dorothea choosing to paint this, though, does, I think, say something different. It places you, the viewer, in this awkward situation where your projection onto her (laughs) is the tell, right? Mm. On how much this has to do with anything. For me, like my first read is we have a zoned out gig worker here (laughs) opening the door to the door room showroom for you. No finger sandwiches. You could easily mistake her for a sculptural object in a sparse (laughs) undaddy de Chirico Valley painting, (laughs) but her exposed chest and face lends some warmth, reminding you this is someone who is breathing. Alive. Somebody's alive. Her breasts are not the only breasts in this composition. She is wearing this lush El Greco green jacket with like Shakespearean inspired purple and gold sleeves. (laughs) And if that wasn't extra enough, she's got some lace wrist cuffs. 
The rest of the jacket is made of what first appears to be roots or vines, but is basically a dress of like mossy headless Barbie dolls. <laughs> you didn't see that coming. That's the uh, bodily botanical tangle of the subconscious, Stephanie, Whoa. folks. Freud, I don't know. Freud hey, did a lot of cocaine. Did a lot of cocaine. Jeez. Okay, you try to okay. get into that stuff. No. Freud, not the cocaine. I was say, I don't know, I'm yeah. good. Uh, so, deadpan Dorothea, like <laughs> we mentioned, is opening the door to a room filled with countless doorways. Well, we, I mean, we could probably count them if we tried. We just don't want to. We don't know what's yeah. beyond, yeah. though. It's better to have a mystery. Correct. Which only reveal more doorways like a mirror reflecting itself a thousand times. And speaking of mirrors, there's one behind her, but her reflection isn't in it. That's really weird, right? It's a surrealist painting. I don't think it's that weird, Stephanie. Well, it makes me wonder. (laughs) Okay. And then for some reason, there is this winged animal on the floor that looks and is acting like our cat, Rachi. Yeah, same wings, too. (laughs) We will call her Scarcy. Scarcy! The Wizard of Oz came out just a few years earlier. So to me, this looks like one of those flying monkey creatures. Yeah, Yeah, with the the smarmy face. He's like... Well, speaking of smarmy gaze, um, Dorothea's gaze does not meet ours. She's not making eye contact with the viewer or anything. Okay, listeners? So don't even try to get answers from her face. She looks preoccupied, but not concerned with something outside of our periphery. And real quick, I just want to talk about how much Dorothea's painting skills have improved. Okay, We listened to an interview where the interviewer's observation that Dorothea's skills improved during this time period was dismissed like pretty quickly. Mm. Like brushed to the side as being sexist, I guess. This man. This man. <laughs> I don't think we misinterpreted that. Um, <laughs> but we need to be clear here. Uh, Her skill absolutely improved. Do you think little Scarcy is just gonna come out of the womb door <laughs> ready to paint? No. No. Scarcy th- needs art classes. Yes, yeah, so little Scarcy needs art classes. She's I'm not even sure she has a little a little thumb. And in this case, I don't know, like, what's to be gained in dismissing that. Like, stop romanticizing these artists. Like, they they learn or they fail just like you or I. And it's, I, I don't know. I just really hate that shit where you're trying yeah. to put them on a pedestal. Like, just just learn from them. Just learn from them. They're human. Yeah. Fuck. Fuck. Okay. Yeah. It's not sad. Uh, anyway. And in this painting, the inflections of her colors in that wood grain lead us through the space through the doorways until the light just gets fuzzy and you lose sense of how far back it goes also the jacket's texture like i know what that jacket feels like yeah. okay it feels like this fake silky exactly surface texture thing okay it's, it's <laughs> it feels realistic enough to draw you in and that goes all the way back to the old galesburg public la- liber- lab- laboratorium can't stop l- talking l- about it <laughs> Libro-atorium, I don't know. Where the novels she loved showed the subterranean river underneath that boring everyday facade. Without executing the familiar or the real, it's difficult to shock you with the surreal. Right. Uncatty Danny. Wow. (laughs) Undaddy Canny. I don't know what I just said. There are a lot of similarities to Renee Magritte, especially the piece we covered, The Unexpected Answer, in that the number of questions I'm left with and the unease I feel grows the longer I look at it. Mm. For both Dorothea and Renee, it's the little details that mess with you. There are two ways you can read this. One is that she is inviting you into the door room showroom. The <laughs> other is that she is letting something out or, or both. 
If I step over winged Scarcy there, past her motionless middle distance gaze, Mm -hmm. through the doorway into the door room showroom, am I going to be trapped in some first person dream core maze in in like a Roblox? (laughs) Uh, Or are they static? Are they are they props? Do they move at all? Right. Like, what did we sign up for here? But if she is opening the door to let something out, I read this as a new take on surrealism's interest in exercising the subconscious, Mm -hmm. flipping the gendered expectations of that era. She's opening this portal like, sure, I'll be a vessel. I'll give birth. Earth. Here's this horrible winged Scarcy <laughs> from my unconscious. Te gusta? Do you love my baby? The the baby is not done. Stephanie, please put, <laughs> please put the baby put the baby back in the oven. At times, it seems like Dorothea found herself wandering through that door showroom, inhabiting each of those rooms one by one with a different version of herself, until that particular room began to close. There is the Dorothea who I relate to, the struggling wage worker, building up paintings from her own experiences, from books she read, from fashion she thrifted. Then there was the Dorothea who built a life with Max in Sedona, Arizona, with no running water, no electricity, occasionally entertaining the locals under a sky filled with stars. There was the version of her who designed ballet sets and costumes. The version of her who wrote extensively, autobiographically, poetry, fictionally. The version who made kaleidoscopic paintings which bore little resemblance to her surrealist works. The version that was forced to move back to France because of Cold War McCarthyism. And the version of her who found herself sewing memory, fiction, song, mood, and painterly gestures into three-dimensional space. We've entered room 202 of the Hotel du Pavot, a Dorothea Tanning installation work from 1973, 31 years after birthday was completed. This is not a painting. This is not a peep. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. This is not a painting, but an actual physical space. And it's what Dorothea considered her most surreal work. Like birthday, the door is our threshold. And inside is not a door showroom, but a dingy, disgusting hotel room filled with creatures. It's like Jim Henson's (laughs) Room of Mistakes. It's a large hotel room-sized installation, one-third nasty wood paneling, two-thirds cigarette smoke-stained wallpaper. There are grimy outlines of stolen pictures. There are no windows and just a single light bulb hanging from the ceiling from a wire. Even the furniture doesn't want to be here in this room. Yeah, we're we're getting to that. So, all right. So let's get into the sad furniture creatures. First, we have fireplace soot person, a.k.a. city lungs collapsed chest. Uh, A tumorous growth of a thing is it's half twiggy, half sharp, uh, half bloated with soot, I imagine, is the consistency of pudding. All encased, Stephanie within sort of like a, a sausage-like casing that's oh. actually, I guess, twee. What would you call it? What kind of fabric is it? Twee? It's tweed. Tweed. Did you say okay. twee? Whatever. <laughs> there, there, there's like a teethy, headless head that is hit the floor. Oh, I think the mouth is the chimney. The like flappy exhaust Okay, thing. the flappy head. 
<laughs> okay, its body is the fireplace. Like I said, it's part of the, it's like one uniform fabric. It feels like this is a cancerous growth underneath the skin, okay. filled with soot. Uh, it was only a matter of time. It was only a matter of time, especially <laughs> when you are or are part of a fireplace slash chimney yeah, situation. A lot, a lot of carcinogens. Yes, a lot of carcinogens. Carcinogens. I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> <laughs> because exhaust are in Car- cars. Carcinogens. Car- well, yeah, okay, car- okay they're not pirates. Exactly the uh, thing, not okay. pirates. Uh, <laughs> Actually, it's we, quite- dig- we digress. <laughs> we, we digress. Actually, <laughs> it's quite amazing that Sooty Lungs and Friends didn't catch fire, yeah. what with being made with a highly flammable material like tweed. Hashtag Sooty Life. All of these soft sculptures. No, no, not right now. Fuck, we haven't done that one. <laughs> I forgot they were here. Okay. All of these soft sculptures no. are made of itchy flea market tweed and batting. Tweed is a rough wool fabric, but it's still very soft, and it has an open weave texture. Mm. It was originally made for the upper crusty men in 19th century Britain, but women started wearing it as a rejection of Victorian femininity. Did I say? (laughs) Femininity. She's chosen either nasty browns or charcoals, (laughs) uh, and this open weave kind of catches the light. Yeah. A little bit like Vontablack, that nano tubing. (laughs) In a a way, like it it does a bit of that light absorption, but there's also light that's caught and it's kind of peach fuzz that's popping it's up. trapped in the peach Yeah, fuzz. and it, it makes, if that makes any sense. Yes. So that peach fuzz is glistening. So nasty flat, but also a little bit glistening. So Just what so you want to see. She's decided to put these drab ass colored tweeds <laughs> meant for the classy and chic onto Sooty and Friends. Next, we have a very dramatic. V- very method. Very method, indeed. A high heeled table person mm-hmm. who likes Sooty Lungs being part of the fireplace is part of a table uh i'll tell you what though they've got they've got some nice gams okay okay which are arguably also part of their heels as well as the table and 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 the pelvis situation it it kind of broke in like 27 places it's all one thing all of that all of that is one thing this table person is wrapped in all charcoal tweed very much looking like Kim Kardashian wearing a top of the head over the face over the heels Balenciaga onesie. Do you okay. know what I'm talking about? I have no idea. Just imagine Kim Kardashian just completely wrapped in shiny black fabric. All right. Like Sounds over like her a, high it's heels. Like a sex thing. Oh, I never thought about okay. it like that. Maybe. Oh, <laughs> um. Yeah. So let's move on. Yeah. Cause... Okay. Okay. So the, oh, <laughs> next up in the in the city city bunch, we have a person who has fallen into non Euclidean physics love seat. Oh, shit. An amorphous, lumpy MC Usher chair. Like you've leaned, like Stephanie, you've leaned back too far oh, no. into the chair. And now the armrest, the armrest th- that your arm has rested upon is now also your butt. Oh. You know, like it's come it's, back around. This is Auntie Gold's chair. You don't want to grow up to be this chair. Right. Like the table person, this chair person has a bent, bloated leg and it's limply lying brokenly on, <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> okay. Okay. I didn't want to go here, but that leg. Esa pierna. Okay, I can't help but see some caca. Okay? Uh, you were thinking it. No. You were thinking it. You two well, now, listeners. I mean, like, now you I can two. see it, but no, no, no. no. Como caca, it, okay? do, it does look a little bit like cat litter. All right, Gross. let's move on. To the wall. Talk about a no-tell motel. 
We have an entangled uh, couple of beings, okay? They've bust through the wall in a tangle of passion. Okay. We can make out a bony back, yeah. some batocks, a leg, and then nobody saw this one coming, a giant furry tentacle. Statistically, this is probably <laughs> one of our listeners' fantasies, Aww. if not several. Uh, so I say I say good day. I say good day. Enjoy <laughs> yourself. Enjoy Glad tidings to all. Feliz Navidad. It's I won't just, make fun. I won't make fun. It's unexpected. It's unexpected and it looks like Snuffleupagus. So let's just keep, let's, uh, okay. let's, let's, let's move on. <laughs> okay. Lastly, we have another wall crash situation. Mm. This time, a disembodied belly and thighs combo. Okay. okay. Not yeah. a big deal to me at right. this point after seeing all this other it stuff. Did, yeah, it either makes the most sense or the, or the least sense. <laughs> right. All of the objects, whether it's the furniture or the body parts that we've described, they're all realistic sizes. They're all safe sizes. Right. Not too big, not too small, which kind of neutralizes any anxiety or danger that they might pose. I think this is maybe like a slice of life piece. Like the Davenports once again have become sentient, you know, oh. after years of torment and torture. Like they, they, they would like to also get the fuck out of Galesburg. Thank you. Uh, but it's not, it's not really working. Whatever pill they took to become sentient isn't working. There's a mutation in the mutation. It's a David Cronenberg film, you know, at this point. I mean, you think it's boring sitting on the couch waiting to grow up? Try a being the couch. <laughs> no, it's wait, 11. wait, wait, no, wait, what? wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you're, you're a little late on the draw. Fuera! Fuera. I went on to the next round. Fuera. No, 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 I, next round. Fuera. <laughs> Dorothea described these works as three-dimensional avatars for the paintings she had been making for decades. The closest comparison from a previous episode standpoint is Maria Marchines, who was making surreal viney hybrid plant forms, who Dorothea probably saw during her time in New York City. New York, New York City. New, New York, York City. City. But these furniture figures are the opposite of Maria Marchines in almost every way. First of all, they're not made from bronze. There, There's no carving something solid. Mm -hmm. There's no pouring molten metal into anything. So they can't really defy gravity because they're a soft sculpture once again. I know. Hey. I know. Hey. Can we finish? Please? Chill. Just chill. It's been a long time stuff. They haven't eaten in a long time. Maria Marchines also showed a range of human emotions. Mm -hmm. They were animated. They were dangerous. They wanted to seduce you. They, they wanted to marry, fuck, or kill you. Okay. <laughs> Of the seven deadly sins, Maria would be lust and wrath. Mm. And maybe a little bonbon. A little bonbon with a side of fascist. Um, <laughs> Dorothea's would be sloth and gluttony. Dorothea's are sad cast-offs from like dark crystals. Like <laughs> no puppeteer could bring themselves to puppet these limp, broken, <laughs> non-Euclidean chair creatures, which I think is the point. Well, like her other work, Dorothea didn't want us to overthink the meaning. Right. Because it's supposed to unlock something deep inside of you. Mm. It's your experience, and this isn't supposed to be a good experience. <laughs> These are sad monsters, right? They're cautionary tales. They're languishing. <laughs> like those days that you're staring at your phone all day oh, on the couch. Bleh. Oh, this is making me grow out. And you just feel like shit. Like, why did I do this to myself? <laughs> those days you literally feel like a molecular sludge monster. <sighs> then you realize you've cellularly fused with your couch. The butt, your butt is now the armrest. <laughs> your rich bitch Patagonia fleece is part of the upholstery. <laughs> And your your belly is is bloated and extended because you, you don't have the strength to move your giant couch body to the bathroom. It's something we can all relate to, Stephanie. We all have those days. <laughs> we do. Stephanie, there it is. We finally found the correct door portal in the door room showroom. Excuse me. 
leading us to the shores of La Isla de Artslice, where the Artslice Museum on top of the Artslice Hilltop, surrounded, excuse me, by the candy and condom moat, is just waiting for us to enter its, its, its opening threshold. <laughs> Let me just open the door right now. So we're, kind of, we're in the middle of a thing here, but yeah, I think it's time. It's been, yeah, it's been a minute, so they probably deserve a, a pantry. I think so. I think it's overdue. Vamonos. When you think of a sculpture, you probably think of solid bronze figures peering off in the distance from some well-manicured museum lawn begging you, begging you to test their resiliency with whatever you happen to have in your pockets, be that hammers, loose Lego bricks, uh, battery acid, dynamite. Or you might think of the rigid yet fragile ceramic vases you found in pieces on the floor while your cat slumbers content and fulfilled. But artists have been softening the bronzen erectedness of sculptures since the pop art movement of the 1960s, when Klaus Oldenburg probably saw a deflated beach ball and thought, oh, what if that, I could like make that into a toilet or lipstick or french fries. Arguably, you could go back even further and credit the crafty crochet work of 16th century Shang Dynasty China or the 20th century ready-mades of Markel Duchamp or maybe even the first bouncy house that was conceived in 1959, just a few years before pop art, I looked it up. Instead of materials that require you to chisel or mold your way to dimensionality, soft sculpture appreciates the flaccid, the flexible. Vinyl, fiber, textiles, hair, leather, uh, really anything that can't stand on their own can be used in a soft sculpture. While Klaus and Yayoi Kusama are some of the earliest and best-known artists working in soft sculpture, even today you might find yourself watching a dohosa translucent reproduction of an apartment foyer subtly move in the air conditioner breeze of the gallery. Or you might resist the urge to jump into a pile of Sheila Hicks' giant pom-pom balls. Making a soft sculpture may have a lower barrier of entry, but it's no less complicated than chiseling marble. You have to still consider density and construction for that giant, oily pizza slice to flop in all the right places. Or durability, gravity, and weather for your site-specific sewn quilt of colorful vinyl. Stephanie, our little Pantyamon babies have been satiated after a long wait. We did actually feed them, though, listeners. I don't want you to think that we haven't fed them in six months. We do feed them. They just really wanted a pantry. Yeah. It was time. It's like an extra special treat. Like tuna for your cats. Well, that's what we feed them most of the time. But when they get an art size pantry, that's re- that's like the nutrients are there. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> Stephanie, we're here. Uh, y- you know, the art size museum, we're here. We, f- we walked through the door threshold. We fed the pantry mods. Everything's yes, good. Everything's it's a beautiful, beautiful evening on La Isla. Mm-hmm. The candy and condom moat is gently reflecting the moonlight. We're all enjoying this mild fall night because we didn't have to pull off any art heist for this one. Right. Right. We just requested it. Uh, we did. I mean, we forged some documents. Loki heist. Um. So we have the Surrealist Works birthday from 1940. 42, and the Hotel du Pavot Chambre 202 from 1972. How to do there? All that right. Good? And we have to decide <laughs> if they are going back to their respective museums or if we are keeping them here. Should they stay or should they go? Dor, Thea, has some brilliant... <laughs> I can't believe... I can't believe I just thought of that. I can't. I can't believe I just thought of that. I can. It's like right in front of our faces. The entire day. Oh, fuck. Dor has some brilliant moments. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. they remind me of some of the best work of her peers. She is right there with them at times. Definitely. At times. I'm going to say it. At times. They're coming out the gate hot. Definitely. And it's funny because this work, birthday, birthday, door day. 
Sports Day. Door Day. I like that. <laughs> um, it's grown on me. It has grown on me, even though in the past I kind of scoffed at it yeah, a lot. Yeah, turned your little chin up at it. <laughs> kind of like, ugh, okay. However, I can't think of any surrealist women self-portraits quite like this one. I really like getting lost in that razor sharp renaissance detail, especially in her coat. Um, But she also gives my eyes a break with those floorboards and the door. So this is one of her strongest works for me Mm. ever. And probably because this is OG Dorothea, right? Like pre-art world, like really being in the art world, pre-Max Ernst. She still had that early career energy. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, when you got to wash your only pair of pantyhose every night, it just gives you that anger, that energy that you need. And then you get all soft, you get one, two, three. Three, maybe four pairs of extra pantyhose. You know what I'm saying? The energy <laughs> dissipates. That anger that you need dissipates a little bit. Mm, I can see that it's happening. A theory. It's a theory. Okay. I can see that happening. However, I still think we get that energy in Room 202. Okay. But it's not the same execution. And it comes in bits and pieces. Yes. It does not show up like full force like in birthday. But hear me out. In birthday, Dor takes back control of her body's societal expectations. Okay. Even from the male-centric surrealism, she chooses what to reveal, what to veil. And then instead of having a family and buying a Davenport, as was expected, <laughs> she deadpan gives us her child <laughs> that she created, right, out of her own imagination. Okay. The winged Scarcy. Yeah. She takes us to the undaddy valley where the Davenports burn <laughs> They light the sky and the Scarsies fly and drop their little crinkle mylar toys on your head all day long. It's great. Aw, yeah. it's like a good luck symbol. Or they're about to pounce on you. <laughs> just mark their kill, actually. That's we true. don't know. So she's doing something similar in Room 202, but she's not in her 30s anymore. She's in her 60s now. Mm-hmm. And just like there are societal expectations for young women that go against the actual experience of being a young woman, <laughs> there are also expectations to stay looking young and wrinkle-free. And it's obviously not realistic to maintain. So one interpretation I have is that these sooty figures are the anti-quote ideal bodies. And Dorothea had dealt with a bout of sciatica that knocked her out for a whole year. So she's been injured. She's aging. She has watched Max age. He's like 19 years older than her. So she's not only considering the psychological, Mm -hmm. she's also dealing with some like very serious life changes, Mm -hmm. both like physically and mentally, right? I think that is maybe a peripheral part of the work. We absorb all these things that are going on in our lives and it all kind of soaks into our work like a big nasty sponge. (laughs) (laughs) We wring that sponge over like a canvas or some sculptures or whatever. And that's how the magic's made. But as such is being an artist, whether you know it or not, whether you want to or not, it's a gift and a curse. That being said, Dorothea gives us a little insight into what Sooty and the Bunch reminded her of. There is a song that we could not find the recording of anywhere, just some lyrics and sheet music. So if you're a musician listeners and you want to recreate this for us, you want to sing us a jaunty tune, (laughs) hit us up. Definitely. It's from her childhood and it's called In Room 202, which is about a Chicago gangster's mall checking into a room and then tragically poisoning herself Sad. on purpose. It is very tragic. She was also inspired by Karl Heinz Stockhausen. 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 I feel like I put an extra E-N in there somewhere. Uh, his composition, Hymnen. Thank you, Dor, for the recommendation. It is a really interesting album. It's an angsty post-war Germany shifting soundscape. I loved it. She described it as inspiring her to make 3D work because it was such an auditory experience of space, if that Whoa. makes any sense at all. Inspiration 
Christian shows up in all these different places. Like, I don't think any of the things we mentioned are a part of this work, but they are a part of this work. Yeah, you're right. Just like you said, it's on the periphery. Definitely a part of it still. And it's really important to say here that she was ahead of her time. Yes. Very few people were depicting sculptural figures in such a grotesque way. Critics and her artistic peers didn't quite know what to do with it. So she got a lot of flack for making these. Mostly because they were soft sculptures. It was like frumpy. A material that belongs on a suit but is on this random amorphous figure. And like we said, it's like blah. It's like blah. It's just like this blah experience. And that's on purpose, which we take for granted now what artists like Louis Bourgeois made mainstream Mm -hmm. just like 10 or 20 years later. Mm -hmm. But I mean... You said it. The sooty bunch, to me, they're too safe. The sizes are safe. The bodies, while sad, they are sad in a safe way. Okay. And it's just, they kind of look like wallowing Muppets. I mean, there's yeah. no other way of putting it. <laughs> and that's fine. It, that is fine. But I, I think maybe not in the way they are arranged. Okay. There's just a part of me that is like, Jesus, will you just push it 10 to 20% beyond where it is now? Yeah, have to agree. This work would have been so much better, in my opinion, if it was just the non-Euclidean physics love seat, for example. <gasps> oh my God, yes. Like everything that was important to feel is found in just that chair. Yes, absolutely. It's found in just that chair. You don't really need all the other stuff. Or do more. Do more. Right. Maximalist, cover the walls in fur. Anything, right? Like make the boils in Sooty and Friends the size of the fucking room. Like (laughs) I want to feel her obsession. Like I want to be enveloped in that obsession. Like, but I also I want to be repulsed. I want to be sad. Or I want to exactly, yeah, I want to be mobilized because I'm so sad. Like something, right? Because it's always best to get a reaction from the work one way or another. Just overall, like, I don't know where I stand with this installation as a whole, which is usually not a great place to be at because that means I don't have a strong opinion either way. You don't want to be a Goldilocks, and this is a very (laughs) Goldilocks work. Exactly. Well, and just like the prismatic works we covered in the Patreon episode, they're amazing. Mm -hmm. They're calculated. They play to her strengths. And they are way ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. Like she, like we said in the episode, she predates Jenny Seville, Cecily Brown, Annie Lapine. But after that, she moves and wonders and experiments for a long time. Yeah, but not everyone is the same. We're human, you and me. We've also done this. We do. We wandered and then made really shitty work. Absolutely. It just means we're human. You don't get birthday. You don't get the prismatic series. You don't get the non-Euclidean physics chair without (laughs) those long seasons of just experience. But I don't think it's great enough to make me want to put Room 202 in the Arts Life Museum. Okay. What are you thinking? Feeling old, sl- old sledgy. Old sledgy coming back. Sledgy's coming back? Yeah. It's okay. like I'm just opening my palm and it's like, oh, it's there in this video game of life. Wow, this is really bad. Um, okay. Smash, smash. We're going to smash a lot of it. Mostly the room itself. <laughs> I really want the method table legs. Okay. That is what I'm taking with me. Okay. And I'm going to smash. That would be the first one I would smash. What? I do like the the legs, actually. I do really like the legs there. I love love that piece. (laughs) I like the fireplace on its own. I like Sooty. You like Sooty? Uh, Obviously, the non-Euclidean chair piece has become maybe my favorite Dorothea Tanning piece ever. Really? I really, yeah, there's something about the form that I really like. I know you called the, it caca. The, no, caca. Caca. No, caca. We're going to leave everything else behind. Can we make them beanbag chairs in the, the <laughs> cafe? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, okay. I mean, I think we're just keeping birthday because it's from the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And fuck the PMA right now. Anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> let your workers unionize, which I think you might have done to, as of this morning. I'm Out of sure. convenience for your Matisse yeah. show. I said it. I said what I said. Oh, yeah. I said what I said. Yeah. The ghost of Marcel Duchamp haunts you, Philadelphia, especially you, the PMA. You already fucked up. <laughs> all right. Do you want a little, little punk prankster, ghosty Marcel Duchamp fucking with you all the time? No, I don't think so. Definitely not. Back the fuck off. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let us discuss this work. Okay, PMA, come at me. Okay. They might they have lawyers and stuff. We don't. I mean, we do. We have great lawyers. We have. I, yeah, we have a lot of lawyers. We have a room full of lawyers here. You want me to call Craig? Yeah. I'll call Craig. Yeah. yeah, we know Craig. Yeah, Craig. Yeah, talk to our boy Craig. I I just I really want to have a Dorothea like legit work in our museum and I think I can I think I can go with birthday. Okay. Knowing Dorothea, knowing where she goes, mm-hmm. like where she ends up, which we leave off in the 70s and she mm-hmm. has like another freaking 50 years. Mm-hmm. But just based on that, it's like she she's about control, yeah. but she wants to take you by surprise, yeah. so she's about slow, steady surprise. She does that in birthday. Birthday like, feels like her. That's what I'm saying, it's pre everything. Like it's it plays to all of her strengths. Mm-hmm. She was herself. Yeah, she was OG Dorothea. It's the right amount of everything, and I'm good with that. I'm good with birthday. Um, bienvenida. Welcome, Dorothea. Welcome. Welcome. It is your birthday. So listeners, that is going to do it for us today. The feature music today was Lister by A Liminal Face, who recently came out with an album that we have both been enjoying called Friend or Foe. Yes. Hello, I'm A Liminal Face, and I'd like to thank Stephanie and Russell for featuring my song Lister in this episode of the Art Slice podcast. If you like what you heard and you would like to hear more electronic goodness, check out my music on Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. I saw you thumping and bopping to that album today. Thumping and bopping. Thump, thumping and bopping. That's okay. what you were doing. Listeners, you can you can also uh, I guess like thump Russell. and bop to this album. We will link it in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. Art has always been the raft onto which we climb to save our sanity. And that was the voice of patron Amanda P. Thank you, Amanda, for breathing life into Dorothea's poetic words. We really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Don't forget to let us know what you thought about these pieces, if they would go in your Art Slice Museum. Share the show with a friend. Leave us a five-star rating on any pod player, all pod players, every pod player. And join those fine folks like Amanda P on our Patreon. Pretty please. Pretty please. And no. And no. Your kid could not paint that. Bye. Au revoir.